Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Skylark 3 by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 5, Chapter 7, Duquesne's Voyage. Far from our solar system, a cigar-shaped space car slackened its terrific acceleration to a point at which human beings could walk. And two men got up, exercised vigorously to restore the circulation to their numbed bodies, and went into the galley to prepare their meal, the first since leaving Earth some eight hours or more before. Because of the long and arduous journey he had decided upon, Duquesne had to abandon his custom of working alone and had studied all the available men with great care before selecting his companion and relief pilot. He had finally chosen Baby Doll Loring, so-called because of his curly yellow hair, his pink and white complexion, his guileless blue eyes, and his slight form of rather less than medium height. But never did outward attributes more belie the inner man. The yellow curls covered a brain agile, keen, and hard. The girlish complexion neither paled nor reddened under stress. The wide blue eyes had glanced along the barrels of so many lethal weapons that in various localities the noose yawned for him. The slender body was built of raw hide and whalebone and responded instantly to the dictates of that ruthless brain. Under the protection of steel he flourished, and in return for that protection he performed quietly and with neatness and dispatch such odd jobs as were in his line with which he was commissioned. When they were seated at an excellent breakfast of ham and eggs, buttered toast, and strong aromatic coffee, Duquesne broke the silence. Do you want to know where we are? I'd say we were a long way from home. Might away this elevator of yours has been climbing all night. We are a good many million miles from Earth, and we are getting farther away at a rate that would have to be measured in millions of miles per second. Duquesne, watching the other narrowly as he made this startling announcement and remembering the effect of a similar one upon Perkins, saw with approval that the coffee cup in midair did not pause or waver in its course. Loring noted the bouquet of his beverage and took an appreciative sip before he replied. You certainly can make coffee, doctor, and good coffee at nine-tenths of a good breakfast. As to where we are, it's okay by me. I can stand it if you can. Don't you want to know where we're going and why? I've been thinking about that. Before we started, I didn't want to know anything, because what a man doesn't know, he can't be accused of spilling in case of a leak. Now that we're on our way, though, maybe I should know enough about things to act intelligently, if something unforeseen should develop. If you'd rather keep it dark and give me orders when necessary, that's okay by me. It's your party, you know. I brought you along because one man can't stay on duty 24 hours a day continuously. Since you are in as deep as you can get, and since this trip is dangerous, you should know everything there is to know. You are one of the higher-ups now, and we understand each other thoroughly, I believe, huh? I believe so. Back in the bow control room, Duquesne applied more power, but not enough to render movement impossible. You don't have to drive her as hard all the way as you did last night, then? No, I'm at the range of Seaton's instruments now. 
We don't have to kill ourselves. High acceleration is punishment for anyone, and we must keep ourselves fit. To begin with, I suppose you are curious about that object compass. Well, that and other things. An object compass is a needle of specially twisted copper, so activated that it always points toward one certain object after being set upon it. Seaton undoubtedly has one upon me, but sensitive as they are, they can't hold a mass as small as a man at this distance. That was why we left at midnight after he had gone to bed, so that we'd be out of range before he woke up. I wanted to lose him, as he might interfere if he knew where I was going. Now I'll go back to the beginning and tell the whole story. Tersely but vividly he recounted the tale of the interstellar cruise and the voyage of the Skylark. When he finished, Loring smoked for a few minutes in silence. There's a lot of stuff there that's hard to understand. You mind if I ask a few stupid questions to get things straightened out in my mind? Go ahead. Ask as many as you want. It's hard to understand a lot of that Osnomium stuff. A man can't get it all at once. So Osnom is so far away. How are you going to find it? With one of the object compasses I mentioned. I'd planned on navigating from notes I took on the trip back to Earth, but it was not necessary. They tried to keep me from finding out anything, but I learned all about the compasses. Bit a few of them in our own shop. Set one on Osnom. I had it, among other things, in my pocket when I landed. In fact, the control of that explosive copper bullet is the only thing they had I wasn't able to get. And I'll get that on this trip. What's that Aranac armor that they're wearing? Aranac is a synthetic metal, almost perfectly transparent. Practically the same refractive index as air. Therefore, it is to all intents and purposes invisible. It's about 500 times as strong as chrome vanadium steel, and even when you've got it to the yield point, it doesn't break. It stretches, snaps back, like rubber with the strength unimpaired. It's the most wonderful thing I saw on the whole trip. They make complete suits of it. Of course, those suits are not very comfortable, but since they are only a tenth of an inch, they can be worn. And a tenth of an inch of that stuff, That'll stop a steel-nosed machine gun bullet. Stop it. A tenth of an inch of Alanac is harder to pierce than 50 inches of our hardest, toughest armor steel. A sixteenth inch armor-piercing projectile couldn't get through. Hard to believe, but nevertheless, it's true. The only way to kill Sitan with a gun would be to use one heavy enough so that the shock of the impact would kill him. And it would not surprise me a bit if he had his armor anchored within a tractor against that very contingency. Even if he has not, you can imagine the chance of getting action against him with a gun that size. Yeah, I've heard he's pretty fast. That doesn't tell the half of it. You know I'm handy with a gun myself. Yeah, hell, you're faster than I am, and that's saying something. You're like chain lightning. Well, Seaton is at least that much faster than I am. You've never seen him. I have. On that anomium dock, he shot twice before I even started. He shot twice to about once from then on. I must have been shooting a quarter of a second after he had his side all cleaned up. To make it worse, I missed once with my left hand. He did not. There's absolutely no use tackling Rachel Seaton 
without an Asnomium rail generator or something better. As you know, Brookings always has been and always will be a fool. He won't believe anything new until after he has actually been shown it. I imagine he will be shown plenty by this evening. Well, I'll never tackle Seton with heat. How does he get that way? He's naturally fast. He has practiced slat of handwork ever since he was a kid. He's one of the best amateur magicians in the country, and I would say that his ability along that line has come in handy for him more than once. I see where you're right in wanting to get something. Since we only have ordinary weapons, and they have all that stuff, this trip is to get a little something for ourselves, right? I take it? Exactly, and you'll know enough now to understand what we are out here to get for ourselves. You have guessed that we are headed for Osnome. I suspected it. However, if you were only going to Osnome, you would have gone alone. So I suspect that's only half of it. I got no idea what it is, but you got something else on your mind. You're right. I knew you were keen. When I was at Osnome, I found out something that only four of the men, or dead, ever knew. There was a race of men far ahead of the Osnomians in science, particularly in warfare. They live a long way beyond Osnome. It is my plan to steal an Osnomium airship, mount all its ray screens, generators, guns, and everything else upon this ship, or else convert their vessel into a spaceship. Instead of using their ordinary power, however, we will do a Seton deed and use intra-atomic power, which is practically infinite. Then we'll have everything Seton has got. But that is not enough. I want more than he's got to wipe him out. Therefore, after we get a ship armed to suit us, we'll visit this strange planet and either come to terms with them or else steal a ship from them. Then we'll have their stuff and that of the Asnomiums as well as our own. Seton won't last for long after that. You mind if I ask how you got that dope? Not at all. Except... When right with Seton, I could do pretty much as I pleased, and I used to take long walks for exercise. The Asnomiums tired very easily being so weak because of the light gravity of the planet. I had to do a lot of work or walking to keep in any kind of condition at all. I learned Kondalian quickly and got so friendly with the guards that pretty soon they quit trying to keep me in sight, but waited at the edge of the palace grounds until I came back and joined them. Well, on one trip, I was 15 or so miles from the city when an airship crashed nearby in the woods about a half mile from me. It was in an uninhabited district and no one else saw. I went over to investigate, thinking probably I could find out something useful. It had the whole front end cut or broken off. That made me curious because no imaginable fall will break an Aranak hull. I walked in through the hole and saw it was one of their fighting tenders, combination warship repair shop, with all of the stuff in it I've been telling you about. The generators were mostly burnt out, and the propelling and lifting motors were out of commission. I prowled around getting acquainted, found a lot of useful instruments. Best of all, one of Danark's new mechanical educators, with complete instructions for its use. Also, I found three bodies and thought I'd try it out. Wait a minute. Only three bodies on a whole warship? What good could a mechanical educator do you if the men were all dead anyway? Three is all I found. But there was another one. Three men and a captain. Composed an autonomium crew for any ordinary vessel. 
Everything is automatic, you know. As for the men being dead, it makes no difference if they haven't been dead very long. However, when I tried to read theirs, I found only blanks. The brains had been destroyed so that nobody could read them. That looked funny, so I ransacked the ship from truck to kill some and finally found another body wearing an air helmet in a sort of closet off the control room. I put the educator on it and... This is getting good. Sounds like a page out of the old Arabian Nights that I used to read when I was a kid. You know, it really isn't surprising that Brookings doesn't believe a lot of this stuff. As I've said, a lot of it is hard to understand, but I'm going to show it to you. All that and more. Oh, I believe it all right. After riding in this boat and looking out the window, I'll believe anything. Reading a dead guy's brain is steep, though. i let you do it after we get there. I don't understand exactly how it works myself, but I know how to operate one. So I found out this man's brain was in good shape, and I got a shock when I read it. Here's what he had been through. They'd been flying very high on their way to the front when the ship was seized by an invisible force and thrown upward. He must have thought faster than the others because he put on an air helmet and dived into this locker where he hid under a pile of gear, fixing things so that he could see out through the transparent arnak of the wall. No sooner was he hidden that the front end of the ship went up in a blaze of light, in spite of their rangers going full blast. They were so high by that time that when the bow was burnt off, the other three fainted from lack of oxygen. Then their generators went out, and pretty soon two peculiar-looking strangers entered, wearing vacuum suits. They were very short and stocky, giving the impression of enormous strength. They brought an educator of their own with them, read the brands of the three men. Then they dropped the ship a few thousand feet and revived the three with a drink of something out of a flask. Must have been different from the kind handled by most booties I know, then. Stuff we've been getting lately would make a man more unconscious than ever. Some powerful drug, probably, but the Osnomium didn't know anything about it. After the men were revived, the strangers, apparently from sheer cruelty and love of torturing their victims, informed them in their Osnomium language that they were from another world on the far edge of the galaxy, even told them, knowing the Osnomium knew nothing of astronomy exactly where they were from. Then they went on to say they wanted the entire grain system for themselves, and that in two years of their time they were going to wipe out all the present inhabitants of the system and take it over as a base of operations. After that they amused themselves by describing exactly the kind of death and destruction they were going to use. They described it in great detail. It's too involved to tell you about it. But they've got rails and generators and screens that even the Adnomians had never heard of. And of course they've got intraatomic energy, the same as we have. After telling them all this and watching them suffer, they put a machine on their heads and dropped dead. That's probably what disintegrated their brains. Then they looked the ship over rather casually as though they didn't see anything they were interested in, crippled the motors and went away. The vessel then was released and crashed. This man, of course, was killed by the fall. I buried the men. I didn't want anyone else reading that brain and hid some of the stuff I wanted most and camouflaged the ship so that I'm fairly sure it's there yet. I decided then to make this trip. I see. Loring's mind was grappling with these new and strange facts. That news is pretty staggering, Doctor. Think of it. Everybody thinks our own world is everything there is. Our world is simply a grain of dust in the universe. 
most people know it academically, but few ever give the fact any actual consideration. But now that you've had a little time to get used to the idea of there being other worlds, and some of them as far ahead of us in science as we are ahead of the monkeys, what do you think of that? I agree with you, said Loring. However, it occurs to me as a possibility they may have so much stuff that we won't be able to make the approach. However, if the Osnomian fittings are as good as you think they are, I think two guys like us can at least lunch while the any other crew, no matter who they are, are getting a square meal. I like your style, Loring. You and I will have the world eating out of our hands shortly after we get back. As far as actual procedure over there is concerned, of course, I haven't made any definite plans. We'll have to size up the situation after we get there, before we know exactly what we'll have to do. However, we're not coming back empty-handed. You said something there, Chief. And the two men, so startlingly unlike physically, but alike inwardly, shook hands in token of their mutual dedication to a single purpose. Loring was instructed in the simple navigation of the ship of space, and thereafter the two men took their regular ships at the controls. In due time they approached Osno, and Duquesne studied the planet carefully through a telescope before he ventured down into the atmosphere. At least half of it used to be Mardanal. I suppose it's Orkondar now. No, there's a war on down there yet. At least a disturbance of some kind. And on this planet that means war. What are you looking for exactly? asked Loring, who was examining the terrain with a telescope. They've got some spherical spaceships, like Cetons. I know they had one, and they've probably built more of them since that time. Their airships can't touch us, but those ball-shaped cruisers would be pure poison for us, the way we are fixed now, at least. Can you see any of them? Not yet. Too far away to make out details. They're certainly having a hot time down there, though, in that one spot. They dropped lower toward the stronghold, which was being so stubbornly defended by the inhabitants of the third planet of the fourteenth sun, and so savagely attacked by the Kondalian forces. There, we can see what they're doing now. And Duquesne anchored the vessel with an attractor. I want to see if they've got many of those spaceships in action. And you will want to see what war is like when it is fought by people who have been making war steadily for 10,000 years. Poised at the limit of clear visibility, the two men studied the incessant battle being waged beneath them. They saw not one, but fully a thousand of the globular craft high in the air, grouped in a great circle around an immense fortification upon the ground below. They saw no airships in the line of battle, but noticed that many such vessels were flying to and from the front, apparently carrying supplies. The fortress was an immense dome of some glassy, transparent material, partially covered with slag, through which they saw the central space was occupied by orderly groups of barracks, and that round the circumference were arranged gigantic generators, projectors, and other machinery at whose purposes they could not even guess. From the base of the dome, a twenty-mile-wide apron of the same glassy substance spread over the ground, and upon this apron and around the dome were thrown the mighty defensive ray screens, visible now and then in scintillating violet splendor as one of the copper-driven Candalia projectors sought in vain for an opening. But the Earthmen saw with surprise that the main attack was not being directed at the dome, that only an occasional ray was thrown against it, 
in order to make the defenders keep their screens up continuously. The edge of the apron was bearing the brunt of that vicious and never-ceasing attack, and most concerned, the desperate defense. For miles beyond that edge, and as deep under it as the frightful rays and enormous charges of explosive copper could penetrate, the ground was seething. It was a flaming volcano of molten and incandescent lava. Lava constantly being volatilized by the unimaginable heat of those rays, and being hurled for miles in all directions by the inconceivable power of those explosive copper projectiles, the heaviest projectiles that could be used without endangering the planet itself, being directed upon the exposed edge of an unbreakable apron, which was in actuality anchored to the solid core of the planet itself. Lava flowed into and filled up the vast craters caused by the explosions. The attack seemed fiercest at certain points, perhaps a quarter of a mile apart around the circle. And after a time, the watchers perceived that at those points under the edge of the apron, in that indescribable inferno of boiling lava, destructive rays and disintegrating copper, there were enemy machines at work. These machines were strengthening the protecting apron and extending it, very slowly, but ever wider and ever deeper. As the ground under it and before it was volatilized, or hurled away by the awful forces of the Kandalian attack. So much destruction had already been wrought that the edge of the apron and its molten moat were already fully a mile below the normal level of that cratered, torn, and tortured plain. Now and then one of the mechanical moles would cease its labor, overcome by the concentrated fury of destruction centered upon it. Its shattered remnants would be withdrawn and shortly repaired or replaced, and it would be back at work. But it was not the defenders who had suffered most heavily. The fortress was literally ringed around with the shattered remnants of airships and riddled hulls of more than a few of those globular, mighty cruisers of the void. This bore mute testimony to the deadliness and efficiency of the warfare of the invaders. Even as they watched, one of the spheres, unable for some reason to maintain its screens or overcome by the awful forces playing upon it, flared from white into and through violet and was hurled upward as though shot from the mouth of some Brodignanian howitzer. A door opened, and from its flaming interior four figures leapt into the air, followed by a puff of orange-colored smoke. At the first sign of trouble, the ship next in line leapt in front of it, and the four figures floated gently to the ground, supported by friendly attractors and protected from enemy rays by the bulk and by the screens of the rescuing vessel. Two great airships soared upward from back of the line and hauled the disabled vessel to the ground by means of their powerful attractors. The two observers saw with amazement that after a brief attention from an ant-like ground crew, the original four men climbed back into their warship, and she once again shot into the fray apparently as good as ever. "'What do you know about that?' exclaimed Duquesne. "'That gives me an idea, Loring. They must get to them that way fairly often, to judge by the teamwork they use when it happens. How about waiting until another ship is disabled, like that one, and then grabbing it while it's in the air, deserted, unable to fight back? One of those ships is worth a thousand of this one, even if we had everything known to the Asnomiums.' "'That's a real idea.' Those boats certainly are brutes for punishment, agreed Loring. And as both men again settled down to watch the battle, he went on. So this is war out this way? 
You're right. Seaton, with half his stuff, could whip the combined armies and navies of the world. I don't blame Brookings much, though, at that. Nobody could believe half of this unless they could actually see it, like we're doing. I can't understand it. Duquesne frowned as he considered the situation. The attackers are Kondalian, all right. Those sheeps are developments of the Skylark. But I don't understand that fort at all. I wonder if it can be the strangers already. I don't think so, though. They aren't due for a couple of years yet. And I don't think the Kandalians could stand against them a minute. It must be what is left of Mother Nile, although I have never heard of anything like that. Probably it is some new invention they dug up at the last minute. That's it, I guess. His brow cleared. It couldn't be anything else. They waited for the incident to be repeated, and finally their patience was rewarded when the next vessel was disabled and hurled upward by the concentration of enemy forces. Duquesne darted down, seized it with his most powerful attractor, and whisked it away into space at such velocity to the eyes of the Condalians that it simply disappeared. He took the disabled warship far out into space and allowed it to cool off for a long time before deciding it was safe to board. Through the transparent walls they could see no sign of life, and Duquesne donned a vacuum suit and stepped into the airlock, as Loring held the steel vessel close to the stranger, Duquesne leapt lightly through the open door into the interior. Shutting the door, he opened an auxiliary air tank and adjusted the gauge to one atmosphere as he did. Once the pressure was normal, he divested himself of the spacesuit and made a thorough examination of the vessel. He then signaled Loring to follow him, and soon both ships were over Condal, so high as to be invisible from the ground. Plunging the vessel like a bullet toward the grove in which he had left the Condalian airship, he slowed abruptly just in time to make a safe landing. As he stepped out upon Osnomium soil, Loring landed the earthly ship hardly less skillfully. This saves us a lot of trouble, Loring. This is undoubtedly one of the finest spaceships in the universe, and just about ready for anything. How did they get to it, though? One of the screen generators apparently weakened the trifle probably from weeks of continuous use. That let some of the rays come through. Everything got hot, and the crew had to jump or roast. Nothing is hurt, though, as the ship was thrown up and out of range before the Arnak melted at all. The couple repairs are gone, of course, and most of the bars that were in use are melted down. But there was enough of the main bar left to drive the ship, and we can replace the melted stuff easily enough. Nothing else was hurt as there's absolutely nothing in the structure of these vessels that can be burned. Even the insulation of the coils and generators has a melting point higher than that of porcelain. And not all the copper was melted either. Some of these storerooms are lined with two feet of insulation and piled full of bows and explosive ammunition. What was the smoke we saw then? That was their food supply. It is cooked to ash, and their water was boiled away through the safety valves. Those rays can certainly put out a lot of heat in a second or two. Can the two of us put on those copper repeller bands? The ship must be 75 feet across. Yes, it's a lot bigger than the Skylark was. It's one of their latest models or it wouldn't have been on the front line. As to bounding on the repellers, that's easy. The airship is half full of metal working machinery that can do everything but talk. I know how to use most of it. 
from seeing it in use. We can figure out the rest. In that unfrequented spot, there was little danger of detection from the air, and none whatsoever from the ground. Of ground travel upon Osnum, there is none. Nevertheless, the two men camouflaged the vessels so that they were visible only to keen and direct scrutiny, and drove their task through to completion in the shortest possible time. The copper repellers were banded on, and much additional machinery was installed in the already well-equipped shop. This done, they transferred to their warship food, water, bedding, instruments, and everything else they needed or wanted from their own ship and from the disabled Condalian airship. They made a last tour of inspection to be sure that they had overlooked nothing useful, and then embarked. Think anybody will find those ships? They could get a good line on what we've done if they do. Probably, eventually, Loring. So we'd better destroy them. We'd better take a short hop first, go to test everything out. Since you're not familiar with the controls of a ship of this type, you need to practice. Shoot us up around that moon over there and bring us back to this spot. Gee, she's a sweet handling boat. Easy, like a bicycle, declared Loring as he brought the vessel lightly to a landing upon their return. We can burn the old one up now. We'll never need her again. Any more than a snake needs last year's skin. She's good, all right. Those two hogs must be put out of existence. But we can't do it here. The rays would set the woods afire, and the metal would condense all around. We don't want to leave any tracks, so we'd better pull them out into space and destroy them there. We could turn them loose, and as you've never worked a ray, it would be good practice for you. Also, I want you to see for yourself just what our best armor plate amounts to compared with Aranak. When they towed the two vessels far out into space, Loring put into practice the instruction he had received from Duquesne concerning the complex armament of their vessel. He swung the beam projector upon the Condalian airship and pressed the connectors of the softener ray, the heat ray, and the induction ray, and threw the master switch. Almost instantly the entire hull became blinding white, but it was several seconds before the extremely refractory material began to volatilize. Though the metal was less than an inch thick, it retained its shape and strength stubbornly, and only slowly did it disappear into flaming, flaring gusts of incandescent gas. There, you've seen what an inch of Aronach is like, said Duquesne when the destruction was complete. Now shine it on that sixty-inch chrome-vanadium armor hull of our old bus. See what happens. Loring did. As the beam touched it, the steel disappeared in one flare of radiance. As he swung the projector in one flashing arc from stem to stern, there was nothing left. Loring, swinging the beam, whistled in amazement. Wow, what a difference! And the ship of ours has a skin of Aranac six feet thick? Yes. Now you understand why I didn't want to argue with anybody out here, as long as we were in our steel ship. I understand all right, but I can't understand the power of these rays. Suppose I had had all twenty of them on instead of only three. In that case, I think we could have whipped even the short, thick strangers. You and me both. But say, every ship's got to have a name. This new one of ours is such a sweet, harmless, inoffensive little thing. Why don't we name her Violet, right? 
Duquesne started the violet off in the direction of the solar system occupied by the warlike strangers, but he was in no hurry. He and Loring practiced incessantly for days at the controls, darting here and there, putting on terrific acceleration until the indicators showed a velocity of hundreds of thousands of miles per second, then reversing the acceleration until the velocity was zero. They studied the controls and alarm system until each knew perfectly every instrument, every tiny light, and tone of each bell. They practiced with the rays, singly and in combination, with the visiplates, and with the many levers and dials, until each was so familiar with the complex installation that his handling of every control had become automatic. It was not until then did Duquesne give the word to start out in earnest toward their goal at an unthinkable distance. They had not been underway long when an alarm bell sounded its warning, and a brilliant green light began flashing upon the board. Hmm. Duquesne frowned as he reversed the bar. Outside intraatomic energy detector. Someone's using power out here. Direction dead ahead. Straight down. Let's see if we can see anything. He swung number six, the telescopic visiplate, into connection. After what seemed to them a long time, they saw a sudden sharp flash, apparently an immense distance ahead. And simultaneously, three more alarm bells rang and three colored lights flashed briefly. Someone got quite a jerk then. Three rays in action at once, for three or four seconds, reported Duquesne as he applied still more negative acceleration. I'd like to know what this is all about, he exclaimed after a time, as they saw a subdued glow, which lasted a minute or two. As the warning light was flashing more and more slowly, and with diminishing intensity, the violet was once more put upon her course. As she proceeded, however, the warnings of the liberation of intraatomic energy grew stronger and stronger, and both men scanned their path intensely for a sight of the source of the disturbance. While their velocity was cut to only a few hundred miles an hour, suddenly the detectors swerved and pointed behind them, showing that they had passed the object, whatever it was. Duquesne instantly applied power and snapped on a small searchlight. If it's so small we couldn't see it when we passed, it's nothing to be afraid of. We'll be able to find it with some light. After some searching, they saw an object floating in space, apparently a vacuum suit. Shall one of us get in the airlock, or shall we bring it in with an attractor? asked Loring. An attractor, by all means. Two or three. In fact, to spread eagle, whatever it is. Never take any chances. It's probably osnomium, but you can never tell. It may be one of those other people. We know that they were around here a few weeks ago, and they're the only ones I know of that have intraatomic power besides us and the osnomiums. That is no osnomium, though, he continued as the stranger was drawn into the airlock. It's big enough around for four osnomiums, and short. We'll take no chances at all with that fellow. The captain was brought into the control room, pinioned head, hand, and foot with attractors and repellers, before Duquesne approached him. He then read the temperature and pressure of the stranger's air supply, and allowed the surplus air to escape slowly before removing the stranger's suit and revealing one of the fenachrone, eyes closed, unconscious, or dead. 
Duquesne leapt for the educator and handed Loring a headset. Quick, put this on. He may be only unconscious, and we might not be able to get a thing from him if he were awake. Loring down the headset, still staring at the monstrous form with amazement, not unmixed with awe. While Duquesne, paying no attention to anything except the knowledge he was seeking, manipulated the controls of the instrument. His first quest was for the weapons and armament of the vessel. In this he was disappointed as he learned that the stranger was one of the navigating engineers and as such had no detailed knowledge of the matters of prime importance to the Inquisitor. He did have a complete knowledge of the marvelous pentachrome propulsion system, though, and this Duquesne carefully transferred to his own brain. He then rapidly explored other regions of that fearsome organ of thought. As the gigantic and inhuman brain was spread before them, Duquesne and Loring read not only the language, customs, and culture of the Fenachrone, but all their plans for the future, as well as the events of the past. Plainly in his mind they perceived how he had been cast adrift in the emptiness of the void. They saw the Fenachrone cruiser lying in wait for the two globular vessels. Looking through an extraordinarily powerful telescope with the eyes of their prisoner, they saw them approach, all unsuspecting. Duquesne recognized all five persons in the Skylark, and Dunark and Sitar in the Kandal. Such was that unearthly optical instrument, and so clear was the impression upon the mind before him. They saw the attack in battle, they saw the Skylark throw off her zone of force and attack, saw this one survivor standing directly in line with a huge projector spring, and saw the spring severed by the zone. The free end, under its thousands of pounds of tension, had struck the being upon the side of the head, and the force of the blow, only partially blocked by the heavy helmet, had hurled him out through the yawning gap in the wall and hundreds of miles into space. Suddenly the clear view of the brain of the Fenachrone became blurred and meaningless, and the flow of knowledge ceased. The prisoner had regained consciousness and was trying with all his gigantic strength to break from those intangible bonds that held him. So powerful were the forces upon him, though, that only a few twitching muscles gave evidence he was struggling at all. Glancing about him, he recognized the attractors and repellers bearing upon him. He ceased his efforts to escape and hurled the full power of his baleful gaze upon the black eyes so close to his own. But Duquesne's mind, always under perfect control and now amply reinforced by a considerable proportion of the stranger's own knowledge and power, did not waver under the force of even that hypnotic glare. It is useless, as you observe, he said coldly in the stranger's own tongue, and sneered. You are perfectly helpless. Unlike you of the Fenachron, however, men of my race do not always kill strangers at first sight, merely because they are strangers. I will spare your life if you can give me anything of enough value to me to make extra time and trouble worth the effort. You read my mind while I could not resist your childish efforts. I will have no traffic whatever with you who have destroyed my vessel. If you have mentality enough to understand any portion of my mind, which I doubt, you already know the fate in store for you. Do with me what you will. Duquesne pondered long before he replied, considering whether it was to his advantage to inform the stranger of the facts. Finally he decided. Sir, neither I nor this vessel had anything to do with the destruction of your warship. Our detectives discovered you floating in space. We stopped and rescued you. We have seen nothing else 
save what we saw pictured in your own brain. I know that in common with all your race, you possess neither conscience nor honor, as we understand those terms. An automatic liar by instinct and training, whenever you think lies will best serve your purpose, you may yet have intelligence enough to recognize simple truth when you hear it. You ought to have observed that we are the same race as those who destroyed your vessel, and have assumed that we are with them, and in that you are wrong. It is true that I am acquainted with those others, but they are my enemies. I am here to kill them, not end them. You have already helped me in one way. I know as much as does my enemy concerning the impenetrable shield of force. If I will return you unharmed to your own planet, will you assist me in stealing one of your ships of space so that I may destroy that earth vessel? The Fenachrone, paying no attention to Duquesne's barbed comments concerning his honor and veracity, did not hesitate an instant in his reply. I will not. We supermen of the Fenachrone will allow no vessel of ours, with its secrets unknown to any others of the universe, to fall into the hands of any lesser breeds of men. Well, you didn't try to lie that time, replied Duquesne. But think a minute. Sithon, my enemy, already has one of your vessels. Don't think he is too much of a fool to put it back together and learn every secret. Then, too, remember that I have your mind and can get along without you. Even though I am willing to admit that you could be of enough help to me so that I would save your life in exchange for that help. Remember that, Superman though you may be, your mentality cannot cope with the forces I have bearing upon you. Neither will your being a Superman enable your body to retain life after I have pushed you through yonder door, dressed in your silken tunic. I have the normal love of life, but some things cannot be done even with life at stake. Stealing a vessel of the Fenachrone is one of those things. I can, however, do this much. If you will return me to my planet, you too shall be received as guests aboard one of our vessels and be allowed to witness the vengeance of the Fenachrone upon your enemy. Then you shall be returned to your vessel and allowed to depart unharmed. Now you're just lying by rot. I know just what you do said to Kane. Get that idea out of your head right now. The attractors now holding you will not be released until after you have told all. Then, and only then, will we try to discover a way of returning you to your own world safely, and yet in a manner which will in no way jeopardize our own safety. Incidentally, I warn you, the first sign of an attempt to play false with me in any way will mean your instant death. The prisoner remained silent, analyzing every feature of the situation, and Duquesne continued coldly. Here's something else for you to think about. If you're unwilling to help us, what's to prevent me from killing you, and then hunting up Seton and making peace with him for the duration of this forthcoming war? With the fragments of your vessel which he has, with my knowledge of your mind, reinforced by your own dead brain, and with the great vast resources of other planets of the green system, there is no doubt that the plans of the Fenachron will be seriously interfered with. Myriads of your race will certainly lose their lives, and quite possibly your entire race be destroyed. Understand that I care nothing for the green system. You are welcome to it if you do as I ask. 
If you do not, I shall warn them and ask them simply to protect my world, which is now my own personal property. In return for our armament and equipment, you promised not to warn the green system against us? The death of your enemy takes first place in your mind? The stranger spoke thoughtfully. In that, I understand your viewpoint thoroughly. But after I have remodeled your power plant into ours and have piloted you to our planet, what assurance do I have that you will liberate me as you have said? None, whatever. I have made and am asking no promises, since I cannot expect you to trust me any more than I can trust you. Enough of this argument. I am master here. I am dictating terms. We can get along without you. Therefore, you must decide quickly whether you would rather die suddenly and surely in space right now or help us as I demand and leave until you get back home, enjoying your life and whatever chance you think you may have of being liberated within the atmosphere of your own planet. Just a minute, Chief, Loring said in English, his back to the prisoner. Wouldn't we gain more by killing him and going back to Seton of the Green System like you suggested? No. Duquesne also turned away to shield his features from the mind-reading gaze of the Fenachrone. That is pure bluff. I don't want to get within a million miles of Seton until after we have the armament of this fellow's sheeps. I couldn't make peace with Seton now even if I wanted to, and I don't have the slightest intention of trying. I intend on killing him at first sight. Here's what we are going to do. First, we'll get what we came after. Then we'll find the Skylark and blow her out of space and take over the pieces of that Fenacum ship. After that, we'll head for the grid system, and with their own stuff and what we'll give them, they'll be able to give those fiends a hot reception. By the time they finally destroy the Asnomiums, if they do, we'll have the world ready for them. He turned to the Fenacron. What is your decision? I submit in the hope that you will keep your promise, since there is no alternative but death. And the awful creature, still loosely held by the attractors and carefully watched by Duquesne and Loring, fairly tore into the task of rebuilding the Osnomium power plant into the space-annihilating drive of the Fenachrone. For he well knew one fact that Duquesne's hurried inspection had failed to glean from the labyrinthine intricacies of that fearsome brain that once within the detector screens of that distant solar system, these earth beings would be utterly helpless before the forces that would inevitably be turned upon them. Also, he realized that time was precious, and resolved to drive the Violet so unmercifully that she would overtake that fleeing torpedo, now many hours upon its way, the torpedo bearing news for the first time in Fenachrome history of the overwhelming defeat and capture of one of its mighty engines of interstellar war. In a very short time, considering the complexity of the undertaking, the conversion of the power plant was done, and the repellers, already supposedly the ultimate in protection, were reinforced by a 10,000-pound mass of activated copper, effective for untold millions of miles. Their monstrous pilot then set the bar and advanced both levers of the dual power control out to the extreme limit of their travel. There was no sense of motion or acceleration, since the new system of propulsion acted upon every molecule of matter within the radius of activity of the bar, which had been set to include the entire hull. 
The passengers felt only the utter lack of all weight and the other peculiar sensations with which they were already familiar, as each had had previous experience of free motion in space. But in spite of the apparent lack of motion, the Violet was now leaping through the unfathomable depths of interstellar space with the unthinkable speed of five times the velocity of light. <laughs>